Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And uh, we'll go down to the catechism memory work. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, and we'll go right into it, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Four. You guys, you guys did good. There. I, I forgot to do the, the, uh, the Bible verse. You did. All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus. Er, evening prayer. You're, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong. And graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Sorry, I said morning prayer, but you guys knew what I meant. All right. So we're uh, moving into the uh, topic of baptism. Uh, now that we've finished the topic of prayer, um, baptism is the next chief part of the of the small catechism. But before we do that, uh, there's a question last week about the doxology uh, in the Lord's Prayer, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Um, because I said last week that the uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, uh, or forever, amen was not in the original Greek. And um, if you look at most of your Bibles, that's what it will say. Or, that, or it won't say that, right? It'll, it'll end at, deliver us from evil. And the question last week was, when did it get added in? Now, I did some research, and I actually have changed my view on this from researching it, okay? So um, I am mistaken for trusting my seminary professors, which I should not have done, right? Um, no, I, I should. I mean, they're smart people. But we do disagree on this, and I, I, I didn't realize this was one of these issues. So it's a, it's a kind of complex issue, so you're, gonna have to, you're just going to have to bear with me on this. But I do want to explain it since it was a question that was asked. Um, so let me talk about the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer first, and then I'll talk about the broader issue of uh, how we understand, or how I understand at least, what is the Bible and what's not the Bible, or is and isn't in the Bible, which is an issue of what we call textual criticism, is the kind of field of study in that. Okay, so as far as the um, doxology to the Lord's Prayer, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, that appears in the majority 
of New Testament manuscripts in Matthew 6, where the Lord's Prayer is recorded, uh, as Jesus saying it after deliver us from evil. And it seems to appear in manuscripts dated around 300 and afterwards. So um, and, and there's a, a couple other places it appears that, or doesn't appear that, that you need to know. So it appears in most manuscripts after 300 and af- 300 afterwards. It does not appear in the manuscripts that we have that are earlier than that. Okay, so the earliest manuscripts don't include it, and therefore that's why a number of translators, maybe the majority of translators now, uh, do not include that as part of what Jesus said, right? And it's not included in, it might be in a footnote, it's likely in a footnote. Um, but unless you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, then it's not going to be in your. Uh, Matthew 6, it's not going to be there because the earliest manuscripts don't include it. So it's put into a footnote. But it is included in, if you if you take all the manuscripts altogether uh, of, that we have of the New Testament, um, the majority of them include it. Okay, so it's a question kind of of, do you go with the majority or do you go with the earliest manuscripts? And some people say go with the majority, go with the earliest. I'll, I'll explain why I think you should go with the majority in a minute. The uh, Didache is the earliest document uh, to include it. The Didache says, um, the Didache is dated around 100 AD. It's a basically like a church manual. And um, it is... Uh, very early, like I said, it's about 100 AD, so um, within a generation or two after the apostles. And the Didache says, let me get this right, it doesn't include kingdom, but it, it says, it, you know, deliver us from evil, for thine is the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Uh, so that's in the Didache, so that's uh, very early. And then... Um, when Jerome translates the Vulgate in 380, Jerome, St. Jerome is an early church father. He translates the Vulgate, which is the Latin Bible, which gets picked up by the Roman Catholic Church as the basically the official Bible for centuries for the Roman Catholic Church. He does not include it. So whatever manuscripts Jerome was using for the Vulgate, and this is one reason to, to maybe doubt that it's original. Whatever manuscripts Jerome was using, he did not include it. Okay, so that and and that's why that's why it's kind of complicated that the, the Roman Catholic Church still does not say the the conclusion, right? Because um, the Vulgate didn't include it, and so it's not they don't consider it original. Now when in the in the reformation when erasmus compiled all the manuscripts that they had available in the 1500s and published a new greek new testament that was a compilation of all the manuscripts the method he used to compile that was basically majority majority wins right so whatever the majority text said, whatever the majority of the manuscript said, that's basically what went into the Erasmus's Bible, which was the majority text. And that's where the King James came from, um, was, was more or less the majority text. So the King James uses it and, inc- and includes it, which is why Protestants, by and large, say it. Because Protestants, by and large, in America... Uh, Use the King James Version for a very long time, right? Until uh, like the last century. Um, actually, even, I mean, we, the LCMS, for instance, used the King James up until the, must have been the 19th. Uh, no, they, they used this RSV there for a little bit. So probably around the 60s or 70s. Um, the, 
the LCMS used the King James Version. So um, that's why Roman Catholics, because it's not the Vulgate, don't say the conclusion, and Protestants do, because it is in the King James. Okay? Um, so I think that explains that the question. So it's a very old, very, very old edition. Even if it's not, if, even if Jesus didn't say it, which basically at this point I'm going to say we don't really, we can't know for 100% certainty whether or not Jesus said the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, it's just one of those things that we, we cannot know for absolute certain because some manuscripts include it and some don't. But it's very early, and potentially Jesus himself said it. Okay, so that's, so, uh, and it's been very widely used throughout, throughout church history. All right, so now, does that all make sense? Anyone really confused on that? Makes sense to Garrison? Okay, Garrison asked the question, so as long as it makes sense to him, right? Um, I, I do want to say, so, so I, as I said, I think that we should include it in the Bible. And that's because of my kind of philosophy, and it's not mine alone. I've been convinced of this by other theologians, but I, I actually handed out a while back, I believe, a um, newsletter article series I did at, up at Beautiful Savior on the Bible and like how to choose a Bible and how to think about translation. And there's basically two schools of thought. So this, um, what I'm talking about is called, like I said, called text criticism. And text criticism, it's not... Uh, it's not that we're critiquing the Bible, but the the study of text criticism is basically, okay, we have these 5,000 or manuscripts or whatever we have of the New Testament, um, which, what are, what are manuscripts? Manuscripts are handwritten copies of the New Testament, right? And for the most part, our oldest manuscripts go to around the year 300. However, there are like two manuscripts we have that are a little like earlier than that. And when we do text criticism, what we're doing is we're comparing the variants between them, which there are relatively few of considering the, um, when you consider that there's 5,000 of them, right? There's, uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of little variants, but like, I mean, really little, like, um, Someone put a period here, and someone else didn't put the period here, right? But it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all, right? Most, uh, like 90% of the variants are what we call untranslatable. So you can't, uh, there's no, even if you wanted to try and translate the two pat, the two differences, you couldn't even translate them differently because they're, they're that similar. Like someone, um, you know, someone used this vowel here, but someone used this other vowel here, but it doesn't change the word. It's just two different spellings of the same word, right? So uh, that's that's most of um, the variants. However, there are a couple major variants that come up in text criticism that you really have to think about what we're going to do with this, right? And there's basically two methods of text criticism. There's where we consider the majority, which I've already kind of hinted at this, what do the majority of the manuscripts say? Or there's what's um, what we'd call a more just a more critical edition, where there's been people who have thought about this and have come up with a set of kind of rules that we're going to um, and kind of consider all these, all, like the grammar and and other, we're kind of kind of try and think through very meticulously what would be the most likely text to be the old, to be the most original. And that doesn't necessarily mean the majority, right? So the more critical method will give more priority to older, uh, manuscripts and less priority to later manuscripts. Uh, the more critical method will has rules like 
uh, you choose the harder reading because maybe scribes were more likely to correct things as time went on. Okay. Now, neither of these methods is really bad. I don't. I don't think. But um, what I, what I what I kind of uh, the and the other thing that goes along with this, by the way, is that there's basically two schools of manuscripts based on where most of the manuscripts were found. So the majority of the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament were found in Byzantium. So this is the majority text, sometimes abbreviated MT, is the kind of the Byzantine text. But there's also um, a couple manuscripts that are older, found in Alexandria in Egypt. And so we have the Alexandrian. Oh, there's supposed to be an X there. Alexandrian. Anyway, you know. Um, school of manuscripts. And uh, the critical uses both of these, um, but the majority method generally just relies on the, the Byzantine text. Now, one thing to know about the Alexandrian school is that these weren't discovered until the 20th century. Okay? And um, that's why the um, King James Version, for instance, that's based on the majority text, um, or I should say they weren't rediscovered. Obviously, they existed at one point in church history, but they weren't rediscovered until the 20th century. So um, the King James, for instance, in the 1500s, they, Erasmus did not have the Alexandrian manuscripts. He didn't even know about them, right? So um, he, he would have no idea other than di- disagreement with the Vulgate. For, for instance, the, the case we're looking at about the uh, conclusion to the Lord's Prayer that it wasn't in the Bible, at, or it might not have been in the Bible originally, or something like that, right? Um, he would only have ac- he only had access to all the Byzantine, uh, Byzantium manuscripts, the majority text. Okay, so it's a it's a complicated situation, but uh, there there's ba- basically so when it comes to the critical versus the majority method, um, the critical method tends to do a lot more puzzle piecing around, if you will, with the text. And this is why since, um, uh, let let me give you one piece of little history too. I know I'm all over the place, but um, the critical method really came about in like the 1960s and 70s, partly with the discovery of the Alexandrian manuscripts, but also if you think about um, the, if you remember your kind of Lutheran history, there was this whole Simonex debacle back in the 70s, where the liberal theologians uh, wanted to say the Bible's not 100% true. And so there were uh, liberal Lutherans that left the Missouri Synod because of this. And part of that was based on a method of interpretation called historical criticism, which is different than text criticism. Historical criticism, which wanted to... um, use history and use text criticism to kind of to piece apart the Bible and to say, well, obviously, uh, you know, for instance, Genesis had five different authors, not just not just Moses, because you can tell by the text or whatever. Now, I I think a lot of it was made up, but um, basic basically using kind of scientific method type approaches to try and piece apart the text. Text criticism as a field of study and kind of as a science, especially with the critical method, where for um, really get, gained popularity in the 60s and 70s in that way. Whereas for most of Christian history, the majority text ruled, right? That's just, that's what Erasmus did, that's what Luther did. Whatever the majority text was, that's kind of what they used, right? Um, whatever the majority of the manuscripts said, it was like majority wins, right? 90% of the manuscripts say this, it's probably the 10% that are wrong. Um, and it's normally not those margins. Normally it's like 99 and 1%, but that's, that's just how it goes. So uh, in the 
so anyway, the critical method took off. And um, this is why in all of the English translation, except for the King James and New King James, you have these uh, periodic updates, right? So there's a, in the NIV, for instance, there's an 84 translation, there's a uh, 2006 translation, I think, and then like a 2011 tra- translation, right? The NIV updates. Well, why does, that, why does it update? Well, partly to update English, but more so because as people continue to use the critical method in the Greek, then they um, decide they'll, they'll change their view on a variant, right? And then change this, this or that verse just a little, they'll tweak it, right? And it gets tweaked and tweaked. And then also you get these um, critical uh, additions of the New Testament Greek. Um, so the most popular one is called a Nestle Allen. This is what I had to have in seminary. And as manuscripts are continued to be analyzed, the, um, or if they discover a new one or something, then these critical editions of the Greek, will, they'll come out with a new edition. So the Nestle Allen is on its 28th version right now. And that's not to say that there's 28 versions of the Bible, but they'll, they'll try and, and they'll, they'll change their mind on, um, they'll keep all the variants in the footnotes at the bottom so you can do your own text critical work if you want. But they'll, in the main body, they'll make decisions and then translators often use what the Nestle Allen editors use to then translate into the New Test into the English translations. Anyway, I know that's complicated, but um, anyhow, that's uh, the kind of critical method is this very scientific puzzle piece approach to putting the the Bible together. And in the 1990s, there was a group of theologians uh, who started to question this new critical method. And that's where the NKJV translation came out of, was the NKJV, they were like, the King James does need its English updated, but we, we should go back to the majority text method. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this uh, kind of scientific critical method. We should go back to the majority text method. And that's what got, uh, ended up being called um, Byzantine priority. Priority, and um, I recently, last year, I discovered this whole kind of debate because in seminary, and and I don't think this is a bad thing, but in seminary I was just taught the text criticism critical method. Um, Here's your Nestle Allen. The variants are in the footnotes at the bottom. This is how you read them, and um, the guys at Nestle Allen are probably smarter than you, so. Uh, you should kind of go with what they say, right? <laughs> Which is uh, fine, but I had no idea about Byzantine priority as like an option uh, academically. So last year I was researching this and I kind of discovered this Byzantine priority and I started to read and research and listen to the debates and the arguments. And um, I personally, and I'm not saying that you have to, this is not a matter of doctrine, but I personally came away with the view that we should go back to the majority rules method and um, that we should give the Byzantine text priority. And, and basically, I'll give you the most basic reason why I think that, or t- I'll give you two. One is because that's what most people did throughout church history. And uh, this new critical method is new, right? Not to say it's wrong, but it is uh, not tried and true. And, and the... Um, Basically, these rules that they came up with seem arbitrary to me, right? Um, so, like, for, with the older versus majority, for instance, like, the analogy that I, I heard for that that made it made sense to me is if you want to know what where the mouth of a river is, right? Because ori- what we're trying to do is get back to the original, right? We're trying to get back to what originally was written in with, when Paul wrote it down or when Matthew wrote it down or whatever, right? If you want to get to the original mouth of a river, right? So say a river's going like this. Um, you don't take this little side creek here that's small 
just because it goes up a little bit further than where the mouth of the river is, right? This is a very weird looking drawing, but um, if you want to get to the, the mouth of the river, you stick with where the river is widest. And this rely on the older manuscripts versus the majority is kind of like taking this side creek because we have, oh, we have these two manuscripts over here in Alexandria that are um, 100 years older than the other manuscripts. And so we're going to like majorly change um, passages in the Bible because of that. That just seems really weird to me. And so, so that's one thing. And I'll tell you what the major passages are in a minute, too. Um, because at the end of the day, none of this really matters, but it's interesting to me. Uh, but there, there's like three passages where it matters, and actually four, because I didn't know about, I did not know that this was one of them. Um, what, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, my other reason is that I think, I, I, I truly believe, and this is kind of a matter of doctrine, that God works in history, and he preserves his word. Right, um, the Bible itself talks about this, that that God will preserve His word and that His word is pure, and um, I just am not comfortable saying that for you know, f- depending on what passage you're talking about for 500 years or for 1500 years or whatever, that um, there were people that had like the wrong Bible, right? I I think that the Byzantine text, the majority text was preserved in the Christian community throughout history and that God continued to preserve that uh, up until today. Where the Alexandrian manuscripts, yes, maybe they're helpful for study, but they're not the text that was preserved by God through history. So, um, Again, I don't, I mean, I don't think that it's wrong because it doesn't change too much and it definitely doesn't change anything that the Bible teaches, but um, that's kind of my philosophy. And so uh, since last year, I've been reading, uh, for the most part, the New King James Version. Now I still, um, in Bible study, I've been reading the ESV, right? So I'm, it's whatever. Again, there's not many passages that this majorly affects. And, and this is all, by the way, just New Testament um, I actually just started studying Old Testament text criticism because um, I realized I didn't really know a lot about that, and I know a lot about New Testament text criticism, but anyway. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at, is that I think the majority text rules, and I hold the Byzantine priority. Again, that's personally me. You can research it more if you want, but um, I do recommend the New King James Version uh, for this reason as as my favorite English translation. And all of that to answer Garrison's question that I, I actually do think now that for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, is something that Jesus said. So uh, I take back what I said last week that, or I recant, that um, it wasn't in the Bible. Oh, I was also gonna tell you what the other major passages are. So the other major passages are um, John 8 and the woman at the well, which is in brackets probably in your um, NIVs, ESVs, whatever. Uh, that's in the majority text. So I, I hold to that. Um, like the, the whole story, isn't it? Is, you're talking about the, the complete story, not some part of that story. Yeah, the woman at the well um, is not in the Alexandrian manuscripts. So uh, it is... Um, oftentimes, uh, it's both be, because it's such a well-known story. Most in- English Bible editors do leave it in, but they put bra- brackets around it, maybe even double brackets around it. And this is one of the problems, by the way, um, to me with the critical method, is it does cause doubt, right? That we somehow have these passages in the Bible that we don't know if they're Bible or not. I'd rather just someone say, "I don't think it's the Bible," and leave it out. Or I think it's the Bible and leave and say it's it's the Bible, right? Um, I'm not comfortable with saying 
because it, it, it's, I mean, maybe it's not, but to me, it, it sounds like it could be a slippery slope that, oh, well, this gets bracketed now. What's going to get bracketed in the future, right? And you can already see that with English translations that, that are going like woke, like, I mean, they're going like gender neutral and stuff with their language about God. Um, now, that's just plain wrong according to the Greek, but still, um, that I just don't want to be. The, the, the critical method, part of the problem to me is that it's constantly changing. It's not a fir- it doesn't seem like a firm foundation, right? So for whatever that's worth. Um, the woman at the well, uh, and then the other one is the long ending in Mark. So uh, the long ending in Mark is uh, Mark 16. I think it's like 8 through 16. Um, and it includes uh, a number of things. Um, it talk, it's the, one of the passages that talks about being bitten by snakes but not, not dying. Um, it's got one of our ver- the verses from our catechism in it, actually. Uh, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then, um, but in the, uh, it, it, uh, that passage also probably has brackets around it in your Bibles. So, but that's in the majority text. It's not in the Alexandrian text. And I think it's very much the Bible. Um, also worth noting about the long ending in Mark is that everything that is predicted in the long ending in Mark is something that happens in the book of Acts, right? So it is itself in some way confirmed by other scripture for whatever that's worth. And then the, there's a third passage that's weird because it's almost backwards of what we're talking about. Um, and that would be 1 John 3, I think it's verse five, where the King James has something that no other translations have. Um, and that's about the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And that is something that somehow Erasmus added by accident <laughs> because it's not actually in the majority text, but it was in Erasmus's Greek Bible. And therefore it got added into the King James. But um, it's, if you look at all the Byzantine manuscripts, it's not actually there. So that's kind of a weird one because it's in the King James, but it really shouldn't be. Um, but if you look at 1 John uh, 3, there might be a footnote in there in your Bibles that talks about that. So those are really, and then the Lord's Prayer conclusion apparently um, that I did not realize uh, prior. I never, never came up in any of my reading randomly, but um, is one of these passages as well. So uh, yeah, any questions on any of that? Yeah, that I'm I'm thankful that I I looked it up. I mean, I already knew about all this other stuff. I just um, since you did all this research, if Mark Hunter was a Roman Catholic, if he wrote the Catechism for the children, yes, if he did the what we're studying right now, if yeah, the original and his original Catechism. So what Luther did, this is interesting. I forgot to bring this up. So Luther did not include the conclusion in the catechism because it wasn't ever spoken in the Roman Catholic Church. How, so what he did write is he did include the word amen, and he wrote that line, amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so, that we talked about last week in his um, explanation. And then the later Lutherans, like a generation after Luther, they went back and added the conclusion into the catechism and um, then wrote an explanation to it that we read last week about um, we, sh- we should believe these things. What, how does that explanation go? Yeah. Right. So that was, that was like a later Lutheran. I, I don't know exactly who it was, if it was Chemnitz or someone else. But... Um, the generation after Luther added that because with Erasmus's Bible and with Luther's Bible, uh, the conclusion started to be spoken by the Protestants. And so they added that in. And that's in, I believe, I have to double check this, that, that explanation and the conclusion is in 
1580 Book of Concord, which is what we still subscribe to as a church body. Um, so it's in our confessions, so to speak, that, that we have that conclusion and that explanation, even though it's not written by Luther. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Old Testament text criticism, which is kind of. Comp- they're, they're only Old Dead Sea Scrolls is Old Testament. Um, the main difference between Old Testament text criticism and New Testament text criticism is that we have a lot fewer manuscripts for the Old Testament, and um, but we have kind of like the Alexandrian Byzantine, we have collections that were preserved in certain communities. And the the biggest and most fullest one that we have was what's called the Masoretic text uh, because it was preserved by the Masoretic um, or Masoretic community, uh, which was a Jewish community um, that ended up uh, surviving through the Middle Ages. And, but then there's other texts that we have. So there's a Samaritan text. There's a Qumran text uh, that we found in like the Qumran caves. There's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, these different texts that were preserved in these different faith communities, Jewish and Christian. And um, because there's fewer and because it's divided up into these collections, when we study the Hebrew Bible, Normally, we, we just start with the Masoretic text and then look at um, the then look at the other variants from there, right? So, and that's it's called a diplomatic text. So we have um, the the Masoretic text is a diplomatic text. We start with that, and then we kind of pull in like uh, the Samaritan or the Qumran or the Septuagint, the Greek t- translation, um, whereas like that Nestle Allen I was talking about, that um, co- compilation of like all the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, that's what's called an eclectic text because it's an eclectic collection of all the texts, all the manuscripts together versus the diplomatic is just the one collection and then pulling it in. So that's kind of the difference. Um, I'm actually, I just um, ordered a book on Old Testament text criticism because I want to learn more about that, but... Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, yeah, any other questions? All right, well, uh, I apologize for the, the, the major um, rabbit hole there, but we can start on baptism now. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll tie it in by saying it is important. It is important to ask these questions and to study these things, I think, because... There are, the, even though there are only a few texts, like the Mark 16 and the John 8, on, on one hand, they don't matter, right? Because it doesn't change anything we believe. And it is every, I mean, the, it's stuff that the Bible teaches everywhere else as well. On the other hand, it does matter because it's the Bible, right? And if it's God's word, we should pay attention. And especially with Mark 16, as I said, one of the baptism proof texts in the catechism is from the long ending in Mark. So um, for that reason, at least, we can uh, consider these things. And uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So let's talk about what baptism is. All right, so if you look on page 325, we have the small catechism on baptism. This is in your, your hymnals. And uh, Luther begins asking a question that's good to ask. What is baptism? What is baptism? And his answer, I think, is very good. Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water included in God's command and combined with God's word. All right, so first of all, before we even... Um, get into what Luther means by that, I think it's helpful to talk about what the word baptism means. So it's a Greek word, baptizo, um, to baptize. And uh, Greek 
O's are like uh, W's. Anyway, um, baptizo. And baptizo simply means to wash. Now, this is important because you live in the South, so you might have been told differently before that baptizo means to immerse. And um, this is really actually pretty simple, but it sometimes gets confusing to people. But if you go to an English dictionary, you're going to have what? You're going to have a word, right? Um, uh, Let's take the word chair, for instance, right? And you're going to have multiple definitions, right? You're going to have definition one, definition two, definition three. Now, these might be related and they might be totally unrelated, right? So, uh, first of all, a chair is something people sit in, right? But then a chair might be a uh, position on a committee, right? That you have a you have a chairperson, right? You have a chairman or a chairwoman, right? So you have one word, but it means multiple things. Well, the same is true in any language, and the same is true in Greek, right? So baptizo, if you uh, were and and by the way, how are dictionaries written? How do how do you come up with the definition of words? Well, by usage, right? So you look at a language and you look in a given time period at all the ways that that word is used in context. And then from that, you come up with all your definitions, right? Definitions are drawn out of usage, right? Because however people use a word, that's what it means. Um, Okay, so, and it's got to be in a certain time period because words change over time, right? So, and that's part of the reason you have multiple definitions, normally you have multiple definitions. Okay, well, the word baptizo in Greek, um, there's been lots of word studies done on this. And basically, your first definition is simply to wash with water, right? This is what the word basically means most of the time. And that's one, two, and three, they normally go in that order, right? So like, this is the most common definition of the word. This is the next most common. There are times where baptizo seems to mean immerse in water. Right, but that's general. That's a secondary definition, right? And when we come across the word in the Bible to bat, to baptize, um, yes, oftentimes it is immersion, but sometimes it's just washing with water. And so I think it's uh, very safe to say and right to say that baptism does not require immersion. Um, this is something that you know the Baptist. This is why they have the name they have, is that they're very particular on the way that baptism do, is done is because it, they must be immersed, right? Um, which is, of course, totally ironic with the Baptists because they don't even think it means anything. It's just symbolic. Um, or I mean, they think it means something, but not that it actually does anything. <laughs> but yet they're very persistent on that it's done in a certain way, right? And so they say it means to immerse. But um, the word basically means to wash with water, okay? So um, Luther says baptism is not just plain water, okay? So when we're talking about what is Christian baptism, what is this thing that God commands? Well, if you just had the word baptism and you just had that word in Koine Greek, it just means to wash with water. But Luther's saying, look, it's according to the Bible, when we're talking about Christian baptism, it's not just plain water, Right? It's water included in God's command and combined with God's word. And what is that word of God, right? And this is um, drawing, by the way, on a definition of sacrament that is going to come up um, multiple times as we continue through the catechism because the part of the catechism that we're in right now is now getting into these means of grace. So you have... uh, if you look at the structure of the catechism, right, you start with the Ten Commandments, so you kind of have sin, and then you have the creed, what has Jesus done for me? So you have the gospel, right, creation, redemption, sanctification. And then, okay, I've been created, I've recognized my sin, I've seen my Savior, I'm being sanctified. Then you have prayer, how do I pray, right? And then um, we're going to talk about how does God come to us in 
with the gospel, right? So you have the, the basic structure of the Christian faith, and then we're going to talk about these different ways in which God comes to us with the gospel. And we've talked about this before, if you remember, um, when we've talked about objective justification and, and, and subjective justification, that God died on the, or, uh, Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, rose again from the dead. Now, that's money in the bank. How does that money get into my bank account? How is that applied to me today? And this is what we call means of grace. Means of grace. And uh, Lutherans talk about four means of grace. You have baptism, you have the Lord's Supper, you have confession, absolution, and you have the word. Um, the word preached and the word read. And um, so the first one we're looking at is baptism, right? Okay, so God's going to come to us in baptism. Baptism is not just plain water, but it's uh, water included in God's word and uh, or including God's command, combined with God's word. Oh, what, what was I saying? Oh, um, sacrament, okay. So the word of the four means of grace, um, the word is not a sacrament. The word is simply preached or proclaimed or read. Um, confession and absolution can go one way or the other, depending on how you want to um, consider it. But um, some of these means of grace are what we call sacraments and generally emphasized. Now, I kind of think confession and absolution is a sacrament too, but generally emphasized is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Lutherans like to use um, Augustine's definition of sacrament. And Augustine's definition of sacrament is um, that it is a physical element or physical elements that Christ instituted And that's the word, right? He instituted, commanded, includes in his word, and that it contains the forgiveness of sins. So Luther here, when he says this washing with water, it's not just plain water, but it's water included in God's command and combined with God's word, Right, so the physical element here is water. Uh, this is the definition that he's drawing on, right? So um, he's he's basically saying this Christian sacrament of baptism, it's not just plain water. Okay, now what is that word of God? And this is where he uh, brings in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the institution of baptism. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. So, what is baptism? Baptism is to wash with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is. It's to wash with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's pretty simple. Okay. And I think if we start with that definition, baptism becomes, and then we look at what the Bible says about it, baptism is very simple. And I, I, I always think this, that historically, I definitely understand like why and how and what led up to people having different views on baptism, right? To the symbolic view or the the Roman Catholic view, which is a little bit different than ours um, in the way that they think it's kind of, let's say magic for lack of a better term. Uh, But I, I don't understand, especially with baptism, like the the Lord's Supper is complicated, right? I mean, the, the Lord's Supper is, I don't think it's that complicated. I think we can know what it is through Scripture. I think Scripture's clear. But like 1 Corinthians 11, you know, that talks about closed communion, for instance, it's not an easy passage to interpret or an easy passage to deal with. 
I think it is interpretable, and I think it can be dealt with, but it's not that easy. Baptism, all the passages about baptism just seem super clear to me and like very simple and straightforward. And uh, I heard a Lutheran pastor a, cu- a couple years ago say, if you line up, and he's specifically talking about infant baptism, which we'll talk about, because that's another thing you need to know in the South is about infant baptism. If you line up all the passages in the Bible that talk about babies and children, and you line up all the passages in the Bible that talk about baptism, if you come away with a different conclusion than the Lutheran one, I don't know what you're reading. And um, that sounds like very polemic, but I think it's true. Like, I, I think, and I've done this, right? So I, uh, at, in my Lutheranism 101 class at Beautiful Savior, on Wednesday nights, a couple months ago, we were in baptism, and I was like, I'm going to try this. Uh, so I lined up all these Bible passages, and we went through them. And, I mean, of course, I'm biased, but um, I really don't see a way around it. It, it. it just seems so simple and clear. Anyway, um, and, I, and I've, you know, I've tried to talk to other people about it that have different views, and um, they just seem like they're always pulling in like non-scriptural principles, right? Uh, so like if you talk to a Reformed person about regeneration, which they hold to infant baptism but not to regeneration, they just start talking about covenants and, and, the, and the covenant. And that's fine. But when the New Testament talks about baptism, it doesn't really talk about the covenant. It talks about the covenant when it talks about the Lord's Supper. It doesn't talk about the covenant when it talks about baptism. Anyway, um, it just—it's it, just a, a anyway. Um, what time? People are coming in. Oh, wait. Yeah, we ended at 3:45. Never mind. Okay. I almost did that thing where I tried to end at four. I did that a couple months ago. I was like, oh, I have 15 minutes. Never mind. I have two minutes. All right. Um, so I think if we start with a simple scriptural definition, right? The word baptism is in the Bible. What does baptism mean? In Koine Greek, it means to wash with water. What does Jesus say when he institutes Christian baptism? He says, baptize, wash with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to do. That's going to be our starting point. If we have that starting point, and then we look at what the Bible says, I think it's going to be pretty clear. Um, I think that's what Luther does in the catechism. So we'll stop there for today, and then we will pick up with that foundation next week. Any questions, comments, concerns? Again, I'm sorry for the um, incredibly detailed random rabbit hole this morning, but um, I felt like I had to publicly repent and explain myself for saying something wasn't in the Bible when I actually think it is. So, All right, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that you'd bless our worship today together as we come to you to worship in spirit and in truth. Bless the preaching of your word that it may edify those who hear. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.